I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season six, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada within about 12 months. So she was scared, something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. As weeks of conflict in Ukraine turned two months, the Western world's attention wandered. That happens now with just about any story, but especially with a story that for so long has simply been about slow survival. About brave Ukrainians resisting Russian incursions, staying strong in the face of horrific shelling or reported war crimes. Stories, essentially, about digging in and holding on. Russian forces had occupied a significant chunk of the country. Ukrainians were standing strong where they could, pushing back when they got the chance. But it very much seemed like a long war of attrition. That is, until a few days ago. Tonight, a major victory for the Ukrainians in what could be a turning point in this war. A senior U.S. defense official saying Russia has largely ceded their gains to the Ukrainians near Kharkiv, Ukraine's second largest city. Ukrainian forces retook as many as 20 towns and villages in the east of the country within 24 hours. Right now, the Russian military is on the back foot. Putin's in a weakened position. U.S. officials clearly watching closely how he will respond. Where did this rapid Ukrainian offensive come from? How much ground has it retaken, and how quickly? Could this be a turning point in the conflict? And if the Russian forces continue to flounder, continue to lose territory and continue to be, well, embarrassed on the world stage by an enemy they were told would be easy to conquer, what happens then? What might Vladimir Putin do next. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Balkan Devlin is a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. He is a super forecaster for Good Judgment Incorporated. He is also someone we've trusted to bring us wisdom throughout this conflict. Hello, Balkan. Uh, Hello, Jordan, and uh, thanks for the kind words. Well, the world right now is hearing a whole lot about a huge Ukrainian advancement. Can you just explain it for us based on what we know right now. What's going on on the ground there? There have been very dramatic developments in the past week to 10 days on the ground in Ukraine. Ukraine launched two counteroffensives, one focusing on the northeast uh, of the country um, in, in Kharkiv region and, and in particular in the eastern Kharkiv Oblast, and the other one focusing on the south, mainly targeting uh, the, the city of Kherson, which is under uh, Russian occupation right now. And this has been a counteroffensive that has been on the books and was expected in the past uh, a month or two, but most of the focus was on the south. Although they, uh, I'll be happy to talk about how the the southern front is going and, and the fight around Kherson is going, the really sort of surprising breakthrough came in the northeast around Kharkiv, where the uh, where the Ukrainian forces basically break the Russian front and force them to basically flee the, the battlefield and manage to capture, uh, recapture, I would say, territory that is under Russian occupation about 3,000 kilometers square 
area, uh, roughly speaking, in, in this in this region. So that has been quite dramatic because it showed how uh, Ukraine can actually inflict a major battlefield defeat on Russian forces uh, and can take territory. So it has been a quite a important set of developments. And I would like to highlight one thing, and that might make a listener's job a lot easy. And when they're listening to this episode, they might want to open up a, a map. There are ma- lots of maps uh, going around about the war in Ukraine. The, the ones Institute for the Study of War is is particularly good. So when they're listening to it, if they just go the, go there, for example, and and pick up the the the, the map uh, of the current situation, that might make a lot more sense when we talk about what fronts happening and where, and that might help them to visualize better. I want to ask you, and I know. I know news coming out on social media needs to be taken with many grains of salt from both sides right now, but one of the overwhelming narratives is just the rapid speed of this advancement, particularly around Kharkiv, to the point where, you know, there we're seeing pictures of entire tanks left behind, stacks of ammunition. How could such a rapid advancement be possible? I mean, these are towns that Russian troops have been in for, what, six months or more by now, right? Uh, that is correct. But the, I think there are three reasons for this rapid advancement. Number one, the uh, the Ukrainian buildup in and around Kharkiv in advance of this offensive have been substantial. They managed to forces to that particular front without... Uh, Russians and Russian military intelligence being aware of of these these major major movements. So, by one account, Ukrainian forces manned Russian forces eight to one uh, in that particular front. So they managed to uh, assemble a capable and overwhelming force. While the, the most of the discourse and attention was on Kherson, it's important to note Kherson uh, and the Kherson offensive was not necessarily a ruse or or a, or a distraction, but it is a sort of simultaneous offensives in in, in two so number one is that uh, you know uh, the Ukrainian ability to build build that force um, uh, sufficiently without being targeted and, and degraded by by Russian strikes. Uh, number two, the the Russian forces in the region are relatively thinly stretched. Uh, the most of the front, uh, from what I can I can read and understand, and this and here I'm I'm, I'm relying on on military um, uh, analysts and experts such as uh, Michael Kaufman and, and others, that most of those forces are, are, are either Roscovardia uh, forces, that is sort of the internal guards, internal troops, or the so-called LNR uh, Luhansk uh, People's Republic uh, troops, either you know mobilized troops or uh, or even their, their militias. So rather than there are some regular Russian forces there uh, that were that were position, but the primary, the bulk of the force were these uh, less than stellar, I would say, forces um, of Russians available, which break very easily. And and of course, Russians and Ukrainians managed to push with, with much more uh, professionalism. So that's, I would say, number two. Number three is that, again, as, a, as an occupying force, Russians do not have uh, any sort of local backing in that sense. So it, it, when, when the Ukrainian forces managed to push through, they knew the Russian uh, occupiers there knew that they will not be able to uh, maintain and, and, and protect their their, their, their flanks and, and their rear uh, because Ukrainians' will, population will not be necessarily friendly to them. So they wanted to avoid uh, being encircled and captured 
and 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 this led to a rapid um, you know uh, withdrawal, somewhat call it even a rout of Russian forces and a rapid collapse of the Russian front. So those three things: superior numbers and ability to Ukraine to to amass forces, uh, the the thin sort of stretched nature uh, and the quality of Russian uh, troops over there, uh, coupled with the, you know Ukrainian professionalism and, and and tactics and and the lack of any political support or, or, or on the ground support for the Russian occupiers in the region led to this uh, impressive uh, impressive battlefield gains. In a moment, we can talk about just how much ground has been made up and how much ground is still to go if the Ukrainians are really going to push the Russians all the way back. But first, regardless of how the Ukrainians were able to achieve this, it's certainly been like a huge public relations coup. You know, this is, has re-inflamed the information war and, you know, there's all sorts of positive press and encouragement to the Ukrainians. How is, I mean, do we even know how Putin and Russia are explaining it internally? Uh, I think they're in a pickle. They're in a pickle um, uh, for a couple of reasons, and we can see that being reflected in in, in the public discourse, in the, um, the the TV, you know, sort of uh, debates, and and the, the fact that they are incredulous. They cannot believe that the front uh, really collapsed this quickly. So I'm not particularly sure that the Kremlin manages to craft domestic narrative that can explain these away apart uh, from. Um, the arguments that oh, we are redeploying to other parts of the effort and, and so on and so forth. And, and their silence on the issue is actually, I think, a signal to the fact that they were surprised by, by the rapidity of, uh, and the success of Ukrainian offensive. So I think uh, you know, it's very hard to you know, get into the mind of Vladimir Putin and his, his close associates. But this might be the first cracks uh, in in the in the sort of cognitive armor uh, around Vladimir Putin and his his close associates that in the long run they will win and this is all just going to be fine and and the West will fold and Ukrainians won't be able to resist uh, too long if they just push through this uh, you know six months eight months whatever others would come to Russia to back for 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 ceasefire I think this uh, sort of sense of long-term and time is on our side, that illusion is being shattered. And you can see the, that being you know, publicly discussed you know, in, in, in a very controlled media environment in Russia as well, which also suggests that the Kremlin wasn't ready for, for such an eventuality and did not necessarily send the, the speaking points and the, and the talking uh, points to their uh, minions in, in, in the Russian media. So I think there is a, 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 an important sort of, um, I wouldn't call it soul-searching, but a surprise and facing reality. And they, that may lead, I'm not particularly optimistic, but that may lead to Kremlin to re-evaluate its, uh, its current position and assumptions about the sustainability of its long-term effort and, and its belief that it is uh, winning uh, regardless of the developments on the ground. I think that shattered this Ukrainian success, uh, shattered that that belief, that, that bubble quite uh, significantly. I know that the past week has been full of, you know, really positive images for everybody pulling for the Ukrainians. And it's certainly been uh, probably one of the most encouraging periods in this conflict in a long time. But I want to ask you about the big picture. Does this offensive really mark a major turning point in the war? Or are, is our optimism getting the better of us right now? I mean, it's a very hard question. Um, but I think 
in terms of, I mean, it's it's very hard to to uh, to say whether this particular offensive in this particular period of time will prove to be uh, decisive in the in the larger war. Uh, but I think it does a few important stuff. Uh, one, it is as you pointed out a big psychological win for Ukraine, and it is a big win in that sense for the supporters of Ukraine in the West because it enables both Ukraine and and those who, who, who root for Ukraine in the West to point out to the critics and those uh, voices that we started to hear more a few weeks uh, back about the need to negotiate, the need to uh, find a solution, diplomatic solution now and all that kind of stuff by making the claim that Ukraine will never be able to militarily defeat Russia or, or recapture territory. Now, those voices are being silenced and, you know, you, you don't see them you know, talking much. And I think that is an extremely important part. So in that sense, this will, you know, reinvigorate and, and solidify Western support and will probably push for further and increase the weapon deliveries to, to Ukraine. And hopefully Europeans in that sense will also step up. Americans have been doing quite a bit, uh, but I think Europe needs to do more. And there is more and more calls for, for example, for Germany to send uh, main battle tanks and so on and so forth. So this actually, in that sense, could prove to be the the turning point in uh, in finally eliminating the, the the suspicion and 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 the skepticism of a potential Ukrainian battlefield victory in the West. So in that sense, it might prove to be important. Now, whether this particular uh, offensive would lead or can be uh, maintained and can be uh, repeated in other fronts, including um, you know the rest of uh, Donetsk, Oblast or Donbass more broadly, Luhansk, as well as in the south, targeting you know Kherson and and beyond remains to be seen. It's not an easy act to pull off. There are resource requirements, forced degradation, and all, all, all other requirements. It's not easy to maintain a tempo as such. So that's going to be an important um, important part. But we need to be able to you know, see whether this can, be, this can be maintained in the future. So, But it's, it's obviously an important turning point for Russian understanding of war, and that, that might lead them to question their long-term assumptions that they might be on the winning winning path. That was a great segue uh, talking about all the other fronts in this war, because I do want to bring you back to the map you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. There have been some huge gains made. You know, as you point out, 3,000 square kilometers is a lot of territory. How much more does Ukraine need to gain to actually drive Russia back to some semblance of uh, pre-invasion borders? Quite a lot more. I mean, uh, given even, even with this current um, uh, current success is about 20% of Ukrainian territory is still under um, under Russian occupation. So there's still a lot to go, even to go to the pre, you know, uh, February 24, um, uh, you know, battle lines or front lines uh, would require at least four times um, or, or more, uh, four to five times more the territory uh, being uh, recaptured and, and pushing the uh, Russian occupiers out. So it is nowhere in that sense the end uh, of of such an offensive, and it will be a long war going going forward. Some other uh, you know fronts are more well defended, uh, more uh, you know well supplied, better better guarded. So you know the the, the success of, of of Ukrainian forces in this particular battle um, and and the rapid collapse of of Russian forces uh, may not necessarily repeat in other fronts. It may because there are talks and and, and reports of uh, Russia's inability to recruit. 
more volunteer battalions might, might force Russia to reconsider its force structure and might force them to partial or full mobilization, etc. But the, the manpower will only get worse. The, man, you know, the limitations of the manpower for Russia will only get worse as uh, as others see this rapid collapse and, 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 and Russian ability to um, supply its troops with ammunition and, and others uh, would degrade because of the Ukrainian advances and, and strikes. So it, it, things might get a little easier in other fronts, but it's it's definitely too early to be, uh, you know, uh, very optimistic or completely, you know, enthusiastic about that this would repeat. You know, that we, we we will not necessarily, uh, and I'm, hopefully I'm wrong, but I don't think so, uh, that we will not see the repeat of this rapid advances in, uh, in every front in this war. And we see that in and around Kherson in the southern front as well. It's, it's, it's a much, much tougher fight, much tougher fight than, than what we saw in the northeast, for example. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You mentioned recruitment, and there have also been reports of uh, morale amongst the Russian forces being uh, really low and uh, command being disorganized. I guess my question, though, is... You know, it's been six months. Um, to your point, Russia's entire strategy has been basically to to occupy and, and wait it out. Would they ever really pack up and go home? Is that even an option for Putin at this point? Is it an option for Putin? Depends on how he can sell it. Do I see that as an option for him to consider right now? I don't think so. But it's it's he's coming, Putin and his, his, his minions are coming to an inflection point where they would need to make painful political choices. And I think this, this recent Ukrainian successes makes the choice quite stark. I don't think they could continue to avoid significant domestic political costs of a partial or full mobilization. Something would need to give. Right, whether it is accepting that this is a war and and, and stop with that nonsense of special military operation uh, lingo and and declare either either partial mobilization, complete you know, mobilization, and and then trying to bring in forces, which will take time. You know, they need to be trained, equipped, sent, etc. So we're not talking about from today to tomorrow, but maybe three to six months uh, period of bringing significantly fresh forces, even if there is full mobilization. But there are significant domestic political costs. To it. Sanctions are, are, are going to bite even more in the, in the coming months. Economy, Russian economy will continue to suffer and, and you know, depriving an already suffering economy from important labor uh, force would have its impact and etc. So, but um, the, the current morale and the inability of Russia to create sufficiently capable volunteer forces uh, would also suggest that they cannot continue to keep the, the current territorial gains they have and, and maintain the current operational tempo. 
Um, so it will force them to make some, some difficult choices. What I'm afraid is that Putin may choose a third option in order to uh, mask the um, uh, or, or compensate for the battlefield weaknesses, and that is increase his attacks and targeting of civilian infrastructure and cities. That does not require troops on the ground through you know, precision strikes or, or, or air force and so on and so forth. They might try to force both the, the West and Ukraine into some sort of a negotiating table by very, uh, more than they already did, you know, target uh, cities and civilians and civilian infrastructure as a way to terrorize and, and coerce Ukraine to do so because they cannot maintain a capable force on the ground without making significant domestic political concessions. So that's also my, my, my fear that you know, we will see a lot more war crimes coming from, uh, from the Russian side as a result of this, this tough choices that Putin would, would face in the very near future. This is one of the last things that I want to talk about. When we spoke uh, near the beginning of this war, uh, one of the things I asked you about and that you, you even warned about was that when everybody thinks that Russia is losing or they should be doing better and, you know, the world is sort of turning against them and uh, uh, humiliating Vladimir Putin, that was when he would be at his most dangerous. You mentioned war crimes just now. Um, we've all heard hopefully just talk about the potential of a, a tactical nuke being used. Like how how dangerous is that moment when it's going to appear as though the Ukrainians are trouncing the Russians? First, I don't think we are there. I mean, I think, uh, to be frank, um, the, uh, the talk of, of a potential tactical uh, a nuke use is, is exaggerated. I don't think we are at a stage, uh, Kremlin is at a stage, um, to consider that, I, that's part. I, mean, I think there are a bunch of reasons. I cannot see the political benefit that that would uh, incur necessarily to um, to Russia. It will not necessarily lead to um, without without willingness to escalate even further. Um, it will not necessarily lead to the political outcomes that that the Kremlin wants. Right. So assume that they they dropped a, a nuke on on an island. I don't know on the Snake Island or somewhere on on a ship in in the Black Sea as a as a method to to demonstrate. And the West did not necessarily respond with a nuclear uh, nuclear escalation, but continued to increase um, uh, you know conventional support. What would Russia do again? Now you have only you, have, you basically have two choices: either you escalate further and therefore carry out nuclear strikes within Ukraine and with population centers, or you back down. So there, there are no good options using that. And I don't see uh, uh, Kremlin going that route. Plus, I don't see any, or and other military analysts don't see any sort of uh, preparatory work um, uh, for, for, for such stuff. Those things need to be transported. You know, you, there are, there are um, signs in which if there is a an escalatory dynamic being uh, put in place. We would see the signs of that, and I don't see any except from the rhetorical uh, flourishes, which does not have, um, uh, you know, uh, its its counterparts in in in, in logistics or, or reality down down the road. So for that, I don't think we are we are there. There are very few circumstances under which I would uh, reconsider. I think uh, the, the the nuclear escalation component and that. Uh, would include a rapid collapse of all fronts um, in, uh, in 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 Ukraine uh, from the Russian perspective, and a, a very clear um, uh, threat of um, uh, Crimea being deoccupied um, uh, by Ukrainian forces, and and that 
And there I might increase my, my probability of, uh, of a potential strike. But unless that happens or unless um, uh, Putin you know, particularly feels uh, threatened, uh, I, don't, I don't see that's, that's going to happen. One thing about dictators is that they are survivors and you do not get to be a dictator in a system like Russia or for that matter, uh, you know, other places like North Korea or, or China uh, by being reckless about, uh, about nuclear, uh, nuclear weapons, things that can actually kill you uh, as well. So uh, I, I don't think uh, that, that you know, treating uh, Putin as a reckless figure in that sense when it comes to nuclear, nuclear power um, is wrong. Um, he cares very deeply about his own survival as well, and and going on the nuclear escalation ladder is not a way to protect um, your survival. Thank goodness. Um, from the Ukrainian point of view, now we've talked a lot about uh, you know what Russia is thinking and doing um, after this offensive. Y- Ukraine has made such rapid gains. Uh, what do they have to watch out for as, I guess, their lines get further into a Russian occupying territory? You know, it, it, they've been moving so fast. What what kind of difficulty can that create? Like I said, I'm not a military analyst, but uh, what I would I would point out is uh, the, the difficulty of maintaining such a tempo and, and the difficulty of stretching uh, the logistical lines um, are, are, are two things to watch for. And of course, protecting the force is, is extremely important. This is a high attrition, high casualty um, uh, structure. So replenishing uh, Ukrainian forces with, with fresh forces, trained, properly trained forces, will going to be an important, important part. And so that's 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 number one, and the protection of that force through to to against Russian airstrikes and long-range missile attacks is going to be an important part. And I think that's why uh, Zelensky and others have been calling for more air defenses uh, for that, because now they are getting closer to other uh, Russian uh, Russian Russian forces, enabling them to um, strike uh, further and more in, into the Ukrainian position. So those things are, I think, need to be need to be watched for. That we need to they need to look for, uh, you know, maintaining a sustainable tempo of operations, given the man, you know, re- human resources that they have, the force structures they have, in, and and the ammunition that and the weapons that are being uh, arriving uh, from the West, and and maintaining that tempo at a sustainable rate. Uh, while making gains is going to be the primary challenge and not to to stretch too thin and then enable even a tactical victory for Russians to 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 damage the the morale that this this current battle victories brought will be an important part. So it's always too good to stop and and think about what can go wrong when you're particularly successful. You don't want to do that when you when you fail. You want to think about what would failure look like and what you need to watch out for when you're particularly successful. And this is the this is the time that Ukrainians are particularly successful. So it's a good time to sit down and reflect on what can go wrong for Ukraine right now and, and, and minimize the potential and the probability of that. Well, speaking of reflecting on things, this is the last question I have for you. And it's just, I'd like you to think back to maybe March or April or May, um, sort of after Russia had made advancements into Ukraine. Uh, we were seeing, you know, heroic videos of Ukrainians resisting and trying to hold on to territory and sort of slowly getting pushed back, but, but really fighting back as hard as they can. And we all praised their spirit. At that time, did a resurgence like this this seem possible? Such a such a tough fight back, bringing it right back to the Russians. I think. I mean, on the hindsight, uh, there was skepticism, particularly in the West, that 
uh, Ukraine may be hold, able to hold the line or, or slow down Russian advances and, and limit the operations to a particular area, but would they be able to launch a counteroffensive to take significant territory? I don't think many in the West were, were convinced that that was possible. Most were expecting a long a war of attrition, if you would like a historical analogy, more along the lines of Iran-Iraq war of 1980s. Uh, rather than uh, anything else, where most of the fight is along a very narrow narrow front where the territory changes sides in, in, in a few kilometers here and a few kilometers there, but a huge at a huge human cost. This ability of Ukraine to, to push for, I think, changed that perception significantly, and that's why I think it's a very important psychological victory too, that the this is not only a war of attrition in, in the sense that this will continue for a while, but Russia, uh, but Ukrainians can engage in, in maneuver of warfare and recapture significant territory. And thus, this does not need to be a, a long, dragged out, uh, you know, years and years of war of attrition where, you know, hundreds of thousands die over, over two, two kilometers. If there are enough resources provided to Ukrainians that they could actually capture, recapture their territory, expel the occupiers, and can basically finish the job. So there is the potential there. And this this actually shows that those who are doubting Ukrainian ability to utilize the weaponry and, and generate the necessary force to do so are might be too pessimistic about about Ukraine's chances. And this this is this is I think a good signal for us to to not assume that uh, they will not be able to push push Russians out uh, from all of Ukraine. It will be fascinating to see and and hopefully we see uh, for Ukraine. Once again, thank you Balkan. It's always a pleasure to be on the show. Balkan Devlin from the McDonald Laurier Institute and Good Judgment Incorporated. That was the big story. You can get more at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can yell at us on Twitter at the big story FPN. You can send nice emails to hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And you can sing us a song on a voicemail by calling 416-935-5935. As you know by now, The Big Story is available wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and you know we like ratings and reviews, and you should know that if you've got a smart speaker, you can ask it to play The Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007... TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.